Job 1 to 2. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels, and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin! All that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, 
he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. We've read uh, Job chapter 1 and 2. Um, um, the reason we've read Job chapter 1 and 2 is because we haven't been in the book of Job since July uh, last summer, and actually lots of you uh, here wouldn't have been with us in July last summer. So we've, we've recapped, we've done a, a, an overview of um, how the story of Job starts. And let me summarize that now. Uh, once upon a time, there was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He had a large family and was very rich, but he was blameless and upright, feared God and turned away from evil. You could describe him as righteous, doing what was right in God's sight. And one day, as we read, God had a meeting with his heavenly host, the sons of God, and, and who should turn up but the accuser, Satan. Have you considered my servant Job, God asked Satan. He fears God and turns away from evil. I'm not surprised, replied Satan, for he lives a cushy lifestyle. Of course he fears you. So God gives Satan permission to test Job's righteousness. And so first, Satan destroys all his possessions, but still, Job is righteous. Then he kills his children. Still, Job remains righteous. He says that famous line, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then again, Satan strikes Job with sores from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And even though his wife says to him, curse God, he doesn't, and he still remains righteous. And as we saw towards the end of chapter 2, three of his friends come along, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, who weep aloud when they see the terrible state that he's in. And for the next uh, few chapters, um, between where we finished off, and we, we went through these in June and July, up until the point we're going to start today, we've kind of seen this back-and-forth conversation so one of the friends has spoken, and then Job's replied. One of the friends has spoken, and then Job's replied. And these friends, they're starting to show a, a theme to their monologues. They're, they're, not, they're not very helpful, these monologues. In fact, they turn out not to be very good friends after all. They say, the friends are saying, all these things have happened to Job because he is wicked. Uh, Eliphaz kicked off this idea in chapter 5. He had a question which was, who that was innocent ever perished? 
Or is he subtly saying, Job, you must be guilty to be suffering like this? Uh, Bildad and Zophar step in. They say that if Job repents, God will restore him. However, we know that Job does not need to repent at this moment, because at this moment he is righteous in God's sight. And then there's a second round. And in this round, Eliphaz and Bildad have continued the same thing. Job, you're wicked. You're being punished because you're wicked. And at the same time, Job is kind of been beating himself up because he feels that, that God is against him. And the last time, all the way back in July, we looked at chapter 19, which was a turning point in his mindset when he went from thinking that God was against him to thinking that God is for him. And we had that incredible statement. Have a look with me. Job chapter 19 and verse 25. In the midst of all his suffering, this is the turning point in his head. He says, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. So in the midst of all his despair, Job's hope is in his Redeemer, his living Redeemer, God, who he believes can restore him into the to present into his presence through death to dwell with him forever. And as Christians, that's our hope, right? We have a hope in Jesus, our Redeemer, who stands between us and God, and who took the punishment for our sin so that God can look on us and call us righteous. And then right at the end of chapter 19, Job appeals to his friends. He said to that, he says to them, Be afraid. Be afraid of God's judgment. And so at this point where we left off, you would hope, you would hope from this point onwards, there'd be a turning point in the book of Job, right? You'd hope that they'd all sit down, Job and his friends, that the friends would repent, maybe they'd have a Bible study to get to understand God better. That's not what happens. Because actually, what we're going to see today is that this ordeal continues, and what we're going to see over the next few weeks is that this continues. And there's still this back and forth dialogue. And there's still this theme going on. And so today, we're going to look at chapter 20 and 21. And this time it's Zophar's turn to speak. And before we look into it, I think we, can, we might ask ourselves the question, why, why do we have to read this bit of the Bible? If we know that these friends of Job's aren't very helpful, if we know that what they're going to say is unhelpful to Job, why can't we skip this bit? Why did we not just stop the book of Job in July altogether and not carry on? Well, we know from 2 Timothy that the Bible tells us that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so before um, George comes and reads chapter 20 to us, here's a couple of ways, a couple of pointers that Zophar's speech is going to help us to get us out of that mindset of, What's the point of reading this unhelpful stuff? And first of all, it's going to show us how not to live. It's going to show us what not to do. What we shouldn't do and what we shouldn't say when, when helping or comforting someone in suffering. How we shouldn't use the truths of God. But also, there is a lot of truth in what Zophar says. And as George comes and reads it, try and pick out the bits that are true. Because there's truth that shows us the reality of the suffering of the wicked. There's truth that points us to what Jesus went through. So um, turn your Bibles to chapter 20. 
and George is going to come and, and read it to us. Then Zophar the Namathite answered and said, Therefore my thoughts answer me because of my haste within me. I hear censure that insults me, and out of my understanding a spirit answers me. Do you not know this from of old? Since man was placed on earth, that the exalting of the wicked is short, and the joy of the godless, but for a moment, though his height mount up to heavens, and his head reach up to the clouds, he will perish forever like his own dung. Thus, who has seen him and will say, where is he? He will fly away like a dream and not be found. He will be chased away like a vision of the night. The eye that saw him will see him no more, nor will his place any more behold him. His children will seek the favor of the poor, and his hands will give back his wealth. His bones are full of his youthful vigor, but it will lie down with him in the dust. Though evil is sweet in his mouth, though he hides it under his tongue, though he loathes to let it go and holds it in his mouth, yet his food is turned in his stomach. It is the venom of cobras within him. He swallows down riches and vomits them up again. God casts them out of his belly. He will suck poison of cobras and the tongue of a viper will kill him. He will not look upon the waters, the stream flowing with honey and cards. He will give back the fruit of his toil and will not swallow it down. From the profit of his trading, he will get no enjoyment. For he has crushed and abandoned the poor. He has seized a house he did not build. Because he knew no contentment in his belly, he will not let anything in which he delights escape him. There is nothing left after he has eaten. Therefore, his prosperity will not endure. In the fullness of his sufficiency, he will be in distress. The hand of everyone is, is in misery will come against him. To fill his belly to the full, God will send him burning anger against him. And rain it upon him into his own body. He will flee from the iron weapon. A bronze arrow will strike through him. It is drawn forth and comes out of his body. The glittering point comes out of his gallbladder. Terrors upon him. Utter darkness is laid up for his treasures. A fire not found will devour him. What is left in his tent will be consumed. The heavens will reveal his iniquity. And the earth will rise up against him. The possessions of his house will be carried away. Dragged off in the day of the, day of the Lord. This is the wicked man's portion from God. So chapter 20. Zophar says, the wicked are punished quickly. That's what he's saying. He starts by saying um, that Job's latest, in, um, Job's latest response, that the bit we looked at in chapter 19, I know my Redeemer lives, he starts by saying that's insulting. How dare you insult us, Job? 
How dare you think that you will be redeemed when you die? How dare you? That completely goes against what we believe, our graceless religion, which says the wicked are wicked and should be punished with no escape. And so he starts off by being insulted. And then he says, well, my understanding has reached new heights. My wisdom has reached new heights. And then reveals his theme. Look at verse 4. This is his theme. Do you not know this from of old, since man was placed on earth? Do you not know, Job? Isn't this obvious? Are you stupid? Doesn't everyone know this? What do they know? Verse 5. That the exalting of the wicked is short, and the joy of the godless but for a moment. And that's his theme through the chapter. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 is actually a subtle reference for Job. We read in chapter 1 that Job was the greatest of all the men in the east. And he says, Though his height, though the wicked's height mount up to the heavens and his head reach to the clouds, he will perish forever like his own dung. This is you, Job. That's what Zophar's saying. This is you. You were the greatest man in all the east. And now you're perishing like your own waste. And through the rest of the chapter, he pours forth this torrent of all that he says will and has happened to the wicked and will in the future. So let's let's chunk it up into sections because I think that's helpful. Um, In verse 6 to 11, he talks about the wicked will flee. People will say, in verse 7, people will say, where is he? In verse 8, he will not be found. In verse 10, his children are left behind to fend for themselves. And in verse 11, he finishes in the dust of the earth, his young body laid out. The exalting and joyfulness and fun once experienced by the wicked wicked, is snapped out. All gone. All those pleasant memories perished like and flushed away like his own waste. And I imagine people would have been saying that of Job. Have you seen Job lately? Where is he? I haven't seen him. Have you seen his children? Have you seen his herds? He is gone. In verse 12 to 18, he talks about a lot of food language. The once sweet taste of evil will become like poison. Look in verse 12. Though evil is sweet in his mouth. And then in verse 20... He uses the word delight. He gives into the delight of the wicked and is never satisfied. The temptation and those first tastes of sin are a sweet thing to the wicked. Those first acts of wickedness taste so good. But very quickly this turns to poison, which is vomited out like the venom of cobras within him. And this isn't some self-induced vomit. They're not sticking their fingers down their throat or, or they're not, they haven't got a stomach bug. Look at verse 15. Verse 15 is the first mention of God. God casts them out of his belly. It is God who casts the riches out of his belly. Like the oh-so-sweet chocolate cake in the belly of the five-year-old that quickly goes from being delicious to being vomited up in the lap of an unsuspecting aunt. The sweet taste of evil quickly turns to poison. In verse 17 and 18, his wickedness is now so repulsive that he can't even look back at it. He hands it back and it gives him no enjoyment. In verse 21 and 22, his wickedness will not benefit him in any way. 
is still causing him trouble as his prosperity fails and it seems like the whole world is against him. And then if it couldn't get any worse, those last few verses, in verse 23 and 28, he will experience the terror of God's wrath in hell. Look at verse 23. To fill his belly to the full, God will send his burning anger against him and rain it upon him into his body. It's God who sends his burning anger against the wicked, not just to rain upon them, but to rain inside them. It fills their belly where their riches once were, that they vomited out. They're instead, they're filled with the wrath of God. As they flee from one iron weapon of judgment, another bronze one is plunged into them, slicing through their body. And as it's pulled out, it slices open their gallbladder. Why gallbladder? Well, bile or gall in the Bible is a symbol of corruption. It's a symbol of wickedness. And so as the wicked person's gallbladder is sliced in half, their corruption pours out for all to see. And then they are dragged into eternal darkness to be burned in the fire not found, thrown into the fiery furnace where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The wicked go to hell. It's pretty brutal language, right? It's pretty brutal language. And in verse 29, he sums up what he said. This is his summary. This is the wicked man's portion from God, the heritage decreed from him by God. And so we've read what what Zophar says, and I read what Zophar says, and the question I had, well, is he right? Is he right? What do you think? Is he right? Don't worry, I'm going to tell you. Well, yes. And no. (laughs) There is truth in what he says. The truth is, the wrath of God against the wicked is a terrible, terrible thing. The truth is that anyone that is not seen by God as righteous will be punished. If you die a wicked person, unforgiven by God, you will go to hell. And if you ignore God's cry to you to repent, and we're going to look at that a bit more later, then you will face this wrath described in this chapter. But he's also very wrong. Because what he's saying is that this happens to Job because he's wicked. What he's saying is all these bad things are happening to Job because Job is wicked. What he's saying about the wicked here, he's saying about Job. And we know that Job is righteous. Remember um, chapter 2, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth? A blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. So no, it's not true that Job is sitting suffering in the dust of the earth because he's wicked. No, it's not true that Job's riches have been vomited out of him because he's wicked. No, it's not true that his quickly fading memories of the happy times he had with his family are because he has done wrong things. It's not true that the people going around saying, where is Job, where is he, is because he's being punished for his wickedness. That's not true. Because Job is a righteous man, 
and he's suffering unjustly. And that points us to another man, right? Who lived a righteous life, a perfect life, and yet faced the ultimate suffering. And this is where this bit of Zophar's is helpful because this description, or this showing us that this is wrong, points us to Jesus. Jesus, who would have had the sweet memories of his childhood with Mary and Joseph, fade away as he becomes, as Isaiah says, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Jesus, who was cut down in the prime of his life to suffer and die the cruelest of deaths before being laid out in the dust of the earth. Jesus, who emptied himself of the riches of heaven. In Philippians 2, it says, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And as he hung on the cross... What happened? Utter darkness covered the earth as his father turned his face away from him. And the wrath of God was poured out on him. Not for his own sin, because Jesus did not sin, but for our sin, for our wickedness. And so although Zophar is so wrong in the way that he applies the truth of God... We can use what he says to help us grasp the depths of Jesus' suffering on the cross as a crown of thorns was shoved and rammed onto Jesus' head and his battered and bruised body was nailed to two pieces of wood and he cried out, it is finished. He did it for us. The unjust suffering of our Lord and Saviour. So just as Job suffered as a righteous man, Jesus suffered as a righteous man, but Jesus' act of suffering brings us life. His act of suffering means that if we give our lives to him, we will be redeemed by his blood, and God will see us as righteous. It means that we no no longer have to experience this wrath of God described here, because Jesus has experienced it for us. Amen? Amen. Um, Just one more thing I wanted to say on Zophar, because I think by saying that Job's misfortunes are a punishment, he's also implying that his own lack of misfortunes mean that he is not wicked. So again, he's twisting the truth of God for his own end. And it's very, and when I said to George, I said, George, read it like a Pharisee. It's very Pharisee-like, isn't it? The Pharisee standing proud in the temple and, and praying not to be like, like the, the humble man, the tax collector. And so Zophar is showing us his own wickedness by taking the truths of God and turning them into lies. And the sad reality is, from his very, from his very mouth in 23, in verse 23, he describes God's burning anger against the wicked. And in chapter 42, at the end of the book, got a long way to go. God's anger burns against him. And God says, you have not spoken of me what's right, as my servant Job has. And the beautiful thing about the end of Job is that Zophar repents and God forgives him. And so if you're guilty of using the word of God or taking truths of God and using them against other people or using them to make yourself um, something that you're not, then you too need to repent before God. And so Zophar has spoken, 
He's spoken the truth of God's wrath against the wicked, twisted into lies about Job. He says the wicked are punished quickly. And Job's reply shows us how wrong he is about it happening quickly. So, chapter 21, uh, Zach's going to come read. Then Job answered and said, keep listening to my words and let this be your comfort. Bear with me and I will speak. And after I have spoken, mock on. As for me is my complaint against man, why should I not be impatient? Look at me and be appalled and lay your hand over your mouth. When I remember I am dismayed and shuddering seizes my flesh. Why do the wicked live, reach old age and grow mighty in power? Their offspring are established in their presence and their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear and no rod of God is upon them. Their bull breeds without fail. Their cow calves and does not miscarry. They send out their little boys like a flock and their children dance. They sing to the tambourine and the lyre and rejoice to the sound of the pipe. They spend their days in prosperity and in peace they go down to Sheol. They say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we get if we pray to him? Behold, it's not their prosperity in their hand. The counsel of the wicked is far from me. How often is it that the lamp of the wicked is put out, that their calamity comes upon them, that God distributes pains in his anger, that they are like straw before the wind and like chaff that the storm carries away. You say, God stores up their iniquity for their children. Let him pay it out to them that they may know it. Let their own eyes see their destruction and let them drink of the wrath of the Almighty. For what do they care for their houses after them when the number of their months is cut off? Will any teach God knowledge, seeing that he judges those who are on high? One dies in his full vigor, being holy, at ease, and secure, his pails full of milk and the marrow of his, of his bones moist. Another dies in bitterness of soul, never having tasted prosperity. They lie down alike in the dust, and the worms cover them. Behold, I know your thoughts and your schemes to wrong me. For you say, where is the house of the prince? Where is the tent in which the wicked live? Have you not asked those who travel the roads? And do you not accept their testimony? that the evil man is spared in the day of calamity, that he is rescued in the day of wrath. Who declares his way to his face and who repays him for what he has done? When he is carried to the grave, watch is kept over his tomb. The clods of the valley are sweet to him. All mankind follows after him and those who go before him are innumerable. How then will you comfort me with these empty nothings? There is nothing left of your answers but falsehood. Okay, part two. Remember Job? Lost everything he's owned. His most precious loved ones. His whole body covered in painful sores. 
He's got his bit of pottery to scratch them. He's sitting in the dust of the earth while his so-called friends insult him. And he's just listened to Zophar telling him that he's being punished because he's wicked. And that God doesn't hang about when it comes to punishing the wicked. And he's fed up. That's what I said to Zach. Read it like you're fed up. Did a great job, Zach. To to paraphrase verse 2 and 3, shut up and let me speak. It's basically what he says. Stop talking and let me talk. And then he tries to change the perspective of his friends in verse 5. Because they see, see him as someone being rightly punished. They should actually see the awesome terror of the situation he's in. A righteous man suffering. If you jump to verse 29 at the end, he says to his friends, it says, have you not asked those who travel the roads and do you not accept their testimony? He basically says, if you jump out of your little religious bubble, you'll be able to see what real life is like. Get real. What do they need to see? They said, Zophar said, that the exalting of the wicked is short. So why, verse 7, why do the wicked live, reach old age and grow in mighty power? They said that God punishes the wicked. But they need to see in verse 9 that their houses are safe from fear and no rod of God is upon them. They said the prosperity of the wicked would not endure. Look at verse 13. They spend their days in prosperity and in peace they go down to Sheol and to hell. Job describes, he describes the happy families of the wicked, who in verse 8 see their children established and growing in number. And in verse 12, they have a party, many parties, celebrating to the sounds of joyful music. In verse 10, he tells of their prosperous farms. In verse 14, he shows the evidence of their wickedness. They don't want anything to do with God. They see no benefit in acknowledging him. They're having a great life. Why do I need to acknowledge God? I've got everything I need here. And then in verse 17, he launches a series of of questions at them. Verse 17, how often is it that the lamp of the wicked is put out, that their calamity comes upon them, that God distributes pain in his anger, that they are like straw before the wind and like chaff that the storm carries away? What's the answer? Not very often. He's saying to his friends, you don't understand All of this stuff you've said, it hardly ever happens. And it certainly doesn't happen quickly. What you've said about God is wrong. In verse 19, you say that God saves up punishment for their children. (laughs) Ha! The wicked couldn't care less about what their children do. And then he tries to bring out in the open what's happening. Look at verse 27. He says, "I I know what you're up to. I know what's going on. You think because my prosperity, my house, my tent has been destroyed, that I am wicked. The heavens will reveal his iniquity and the earth will rise up against him. The possessions of his house will be carried away and dragged off in the day of God's wrath. That's what what they're saying. And he's saying, verse 27, behold, I know your thoughts and your schemes to wrong me. He's figured out what's going on. But get real. Wicked, they escape calamity. And get what? Guess what? Even in their death, they prosper. Look at verse 32. People watch their tomb, and even the dirt they're buried in is sweet to them. 
because the people that have watched them being buried carry on their wickedness. And what he's saying is if, if I were wicked, if I, Job, were wicked, I would be prospering. I would be watching my children and grandchildren party instead of them being buried after being crushed in the rubble of their house. I would be tending to my thousands and thousands of animals. I don't have any animals because they've been stolen and burned. I would be reveling in my prosperity, but instead here I am, sitting in the dust of the earth, covered in sores. And his closing statement in verse 34, he says, How then will you comfort me with empty nothings? There is nothing left of your answers but falsehoods. There's no comfort in the words of his friends. They're wrong. They can't be right, because if God punishes the wicked so quickly, then Job would not be being punished, because he is righteous. But after all this talk, there's one certainty. And you might have noticed I deliberately skipped it. Verse 23. One dies in his full vigour, being wholly at ease and secure, his pails full of milk and the marrow of his bones moist. Another dies in bitterness of soul, never having tasted of prosperity. They lie down alike in the dust, and the worms cover them. You've got two people, right, laid out side by side. Who's had the better life? The first one. The first one's had the better life. Look at how he dies. His pail's full of milk and the marrows of his bones milk. He's had a great life. But what's the certainty? They're both dead. They're both dead. Whether the wicked prosper or whether the wicked suffer, everyone dies. Most of the wicked prosper, Job says. Very rarely, very rarely do they suffer like Zophar said. But it's the ultimate statistic, right? 100% of people die. So where does this leave us on this cheerful Sunday afternoon? Well, the truth is we, we are all wicked. Verse 33 said, all mankind follows after him. All mankind follows after him. It's not that one generation of wicked people die and suddenly wickedness stops. One generation of wicked people is followed by the next generation of wicked people and the next one and the next one. And it doesn't matter what you've succeeded in on this earth, whether you've got a prosperous business, a wonderful family, a perfect marriage, a huge house, whether you've prospered like Job describes or whether you've suffered like Zophar describes. These chapters show us that everyone is wicked. John says in 1 John, if we say we are without sin, if we say we are without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Jesus teaches us that unrighteous anger is equal to murder. And that's one piece of wickedness in my heart this week. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's two things I haven't done this week. So we're all wicked and we all deserve to face the wrath of God described in chapter 20. And as we've said already, if you die wicked, you face the sword of God's judgment to spend eternity in utter darkness where a fire not fan will devour you. So what hope is there? Well, look at verse 4. 
chapter 21, verse 4. As for me, is my complaint against man. Why should I not be impatient? What's Job impatient for? He's impatient for his Redeemer. He's impatient for God to come and rescue him. He's impatient for God to come and restore him. And if you're not a Christian, then that's what you need. You need rescuing. You need restoring. And that rescue comes from the one who unjustly suffered, who suffered for our sins on the cross, even though he was righteous. Jesus. We can be delivered from evil and wickedness because of Jesus. Because he took the wrath of God upon himself, we can be made righteous. And it might be that you've been thinking about this and you've been coming to church for a bit and and you've put off talking to someone about this. Why not make today the day you talk to someone about it? And there's lots of people here who would love to talk to you. Rob and Hannah, myself or Beth and George Catherine. Come and find one of us after the service. And I think there's a few applications if if you are a Christian. I think firstly, you think there's there's a temptation, right? To envy the prosperity of the wicked. And that's a big temptation. Or we feel resentment that they're not punished. Right? Our sinful hearts, we, we kind of want Zophar to be right. right? We, we want to see President Putin killed. We want the people who stabbed the guy on Dagenham Heathway last weekend, we want them to be caught and put in prison. Some of, my, some of us might even think that they deserve to be killed themselves. We love instant justice, right? We love it when the driver who has a go at the cyclist then runs into a lamppost. We love that sort of thing. We don't think it's fair that people who live such wicked lives get to have big houses and drive around in fancy cars. We want them to be sitting in the dust covered in sorts. And that's a wrong attitude. Because I think our first response to what we've read today would be to be so terrified by what we've read of God's wrath, that we can't help but want to say to people, this is what's coming. Watch out. Right? Because the wicked who prosper will die. And they need to be warned that if they die living against God, then they will face his wrath. And so for us, we are called to love those people by warning them and to tell them, tell them about the wrath that's coming, to tell them there is a way to be saved. And so why, instead of wanting Putin to be killed or punished, why not pray that someone tells them the truth? We can pray that the people who wield knives around here, seeking to hurt people, would find out about this, would listen to this warning. You can tell those in your life who are still living in wickedness about this picture of God's wrath. And how they can escape it by giving their lives to Jesus. But also I think we should, be, we should be grateful at the depth of what Jesus has had to face for us. So we should be terrified at this picture, but we should be grateful when we think that Jesus had to go through this and he was willing to go through it for us. That he was willing to take the burden of our sin and face this terrible, terrible thing. And we should cry out in grateful thanks. And then the third thing is that we should be prepared to suffer too. Because not only is this 
the stuff we read a picture of what Jesus went through, but it could be a picture of what we are called to go through. In Romans eight seventeen, it says, Now if we are children, <coughs> then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Because for us, following Jesus might mean that our joys are snatched away from us into fast-fading memories. And when that happens, we suffer like Jesus. And when our Christian walk means that we feel the poisonous acts of the world against us, we suffer like Jesus. And when we feel emptied of the richness of this life, and when we despair at our circumstances, we suffer like Jesus. Why? In order that one day we will also share in his glory. Because Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose again. And he's ready in heaven to redeem us to God. He's ready to bring a new heaven and a new earth where wickedness will be no more. And that's the hope that we have. Our Redeemer lives. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it can be so hard to think about wickedness and to think about the wickedness in our hearts, and think about the wickedness of this world. And so, so often we steer away from this picture of, of your punishment against wickedness. And so, Lord, I pray that our response today would be to want to tell people still living in wickedness that there is a way out, that they need to be saved, and that that salvation comes through Jesus. And, Lord, we are so grateful that you were willing to go to the cross to stand and take the burden of our sin to suffer so that we might be redeemed, so that we might be made righteous. And Lord, I pray that in our lives, when we go through suffering ourselves, that we would not be surprised, but we would be looking to hope we have, the hope that we have in your glory, in you coming again, in you bringing a new heaven and a new earth where wickedness will be no more. pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.